0: Hi, I'm Matt Janssen and you're listening to the BRFCS podcast.
1: New York Rovers would like to welcome you to the BRFCS.com podcast, covering the 2019-2020 Blackburn Rovers Championship Campaign, hosted by Ian Herbert and joined by some very special guests. Don't forget to check out the forum here at BRFCS.com to continue the discussion. Ah, thank you very much for joining us once again. In this episode, in part one, we'll be hearing from Bill Arthur in Canada, and he'll be giving us an insight as to the perils he has trying to keep in touch with his beloved Blackburn Rovers from a distance. And in part two, we'll be hearing from John Nicholson, the Football 365 columnist, the author, the writer. He's got a new book out. It's called Can We Have Our Football Back? And it's a terrific read and it's a very, very interesting take on how football is financed these days and the effect that money has had on the game. Well worth listening to. But first, let's catch up with Tony Mowbray. He's making another cup of tea. Oh, so, wouldn't you know it, we've bumped into Tony Mowbray once again. Tony, agitate would you take your brew, mate? Yeah, it's basic really tea, milk, two sugars, in the two-guy mug. The two what, two- what? What mug? Well, I've got a two-guy mug, lad, It was on my desk when I arrived and it's been the only mug that I'll drink tea out ever since at the football club. Where, where did you get your hands on that? Well, where do you think? You know, the Terrace store, of course. Plus as manager of Blackburn Rovers Football Club, working here at Brockhall on the training ground, I've managed to secure all the podcast listeners an exclusive discount at checkout. Oh that's that's brilliant. What, what, what's the code
0: then? You just got to enter BRFCS at checkout. Oh that, that is fantastic Tony, thank you very much. But remember, only Tony drinks out of the two guy mug. You'll have to get yourselves
1: a sheer one. Oh well, no complaints there.
2: Bill, were you going to mow the lawn today?
0: Yeah, okay. I'm just listening to the BRFCS podcast. 20 minutes later...
2: You know, it looks as though it might rain. If you're going to mow the lawn, now would be a good time.
0: Okay, I've finished the podcast, but I'm just reading this week's article by old Blackburnian. 10 minutes later...
2: Haven't you finished that article yet?
0: Yeah, but I thought I'd just catch up on the 4,000 holes fanzine first before I cut the grass.
2: It's raining now, so you won't be able to cut the grass anyway.
0: Oh, sorry. Never mind. It gives me time to catch up on my Twitter timeline. There's so much football content around these days that it is difficult to keep up with it all. I'm retired and can't keep up, so I wonder how those of you who work find time to do so. When I first started following rovers in the late 50s, early 60s, I devoured everything I um, I could find out about them. But there wasn't much to go on. Daily papers, Lancashire Evening Telegraph, yes, it was an evening paper then, Last Sports on a Saturday, and Charles Buchan's Football Monthly. With all the content now, I probably don't scratch the surface, and 60 years later, I'm not as obsessive as I was in those days. Anyway, it got me thinking about when and how things changed. It's a well-known fact that football didn't exist before the Premier League. And much as I hate that saying, and all the stuff surrounding that suggestion, I think it was about that time that football journalism started to explode. In 1992, Nick Hornby's book, Fever Pitch, was published. I think that was the first time I read a football book with someone articulating so much of what it felt like to be a football supporter. It also seemed to engage folk who had not previously been interested in football. Although I had read lots of football books, they tended to be about specific teams and players, but Fever Pitch was about fans. Nick Hornby summed up in one paragraph what following a club was like, and I quote, Few of us have chosen our clubs. They have simply been presented to us, and so as they slip from second division to the third, or sell their best players, or buy players who you know can't play, or bash the ball the 700th time towards a nine foot centre forward, we simply curse, go home, worry for a fortnight, and then come back to suffer all over again. I think that must ring true with most of us about suffering all over again, it's what most fans do. Worrying for a fortnight was probably true of me 60 years ago, but as as I've got older I have a better perspective on things. Fans these days don't go home and worry. They take to the airwaves with phone-ins and to Twitter to express their immediate views. It's trigger happy reactions as opposed to considered reaction in most cases instead of worrying for a fortnight everyone expresses their opinions either delight or despair within minutes of the end of a match and so it goes on until the next game this just leads to extreme and not necessarily accurate views anyway back to Nick Hornby and fever pitch there's a bit in the book where he talks about people being identified through their club what he meant was that when you hear the name of the club you immediately think of people you know, or or have known, and that is certainly true for me. I hear about Hart and I think about Adam and Brian that I worked with, West Ham, my neighbour Barry, Chesterfield, my friend Mick, and so it goes on. And hopefully the reverse is true. I like to think that when people hear or read the words Blackburn Rovers, they think of me, even though it may be years since we last saw each other. In the same way that music can bring back a memory, the name of a football club can do the same. Whatever else happens in our lives we are wedded to our club, for better for worse. It's a shame though that some folk follow the divorce route when things get tough. Oh it's stopped raining now, I could go and cut the grass. But I think I'll just read Mikey Delap's article on Lancashire Live first.
1: So welcome to the BOFCS podcast. I feel duty-bound to introduce our guest with a rush lyric tonight, so here goes. He's old enough to know what's right, he's young enough not to choose it, he's noble enough to win the world, but weak enough to lose it. Yes, it's welcome back to the pod, Football 365 columnist, writer and author John Nicholson. John, how do we find you tonight?
3: I'm all right, Ian. thank you very much, except for a frozen left vocal cord, I'm absolutely fine.
1: Marvelous. Well, well, we'll hopefully that we'll see you through to the end. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about, so we'll we'll, we'll press on. I'm sure uh, we're we're, he- we're gathered round uh, to talk about your latest book which is Can We Have Our Football Back? Uh, which is available on your website which is johnnicholsonwriter.com uh, I read it a month or so ago on holiday and it was one of those that you sort of pick up and um, I couldn't really put it down although I was forced to occasionally so, and to eat and go to bed and things like that but I think I finished it in a, in just over a day and a half Terrific read, it's quite the manifesto uh, What was the what was the catalyst that made you want to write it, John? What, what was the thing that finally tipped you over the edge, as it were?
3: Well, um... For Football p 5 I'd been writing uh, these uh, Friday columns called Love Letters, and it was about an appreciation of various people in the media, uh, in football media. And um, in the course of doing that, I naturally talked to a lot of people who worked in TV and radio. And um, everybody seemed to think, just in the course of conversation, everybody seemed to think the old Sky subscription model um, to put which puts football behind the paywall was coming to an end. That it was basically run its course, and uh, this was around the time that the uh, was the announcement of uh, Amazon having a a round of games and um and of the rights fees going down for the first time, and um, so that that was going on. up thought, well, that's very interesting. It looks like we're at a turning point in how football is delivered and how the finances of football are um arrived at how they're manifesting through the rights fees. At the same time as that, for years now, I've had this gnawing sense of unease about the Premier League and of um, about modern football um in general really, but particularly the Premier League and the economics thereof. And um I knew I wasn't alone in this. A lot of people just felt similarly. And they feel often it's hard to know why you don't like it, uh, but you just feel that it's not quite right. And so I wanted to really analyze that, why I was feeling negative about it, um, what I did and didn't like. And uh, so I began to sort of deconstruct the whole thing. And what it came down to in the end, and as I talked to friends and uh, other people in in the game about it, what it really came down to what the discontent was orbiting around. was money. It was the money that was at the root of it all. That's what was causing everything as I didn't like, to happen. So I thought, well, uh, that's very interesting, but uh, not enough in itself. So that was the whole leaping-off point for the book, was to think um, money's the problem, money's causing all the things I don't like, there is a change coming up in the media rights and the media in general, how that all happens, so let's both uh, deconstruct what we don't like and then think about what, how we could go about making a better world. So that was it.
1: Well, it's quite the manifesto, I have to say. It really is. So for people who haven't bought it yet, if you don't want to buy it at the end of this, you've got no soul or you've got no um, in- so, spirit of inquiry. Let's put it this way. But the, the the book kicks off with a wonderful, if I might just pick up from the pro- prologue, a wonderful story. If you don't mind sharing with it. Uh, why is the grass at Erson Park so green?
3: Yes, well, that's because there's been so much shite on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: which, which kind, kind of sets the tone. I think it was just a lovely little little, little yes. story that goes through there. But you you pick up then and go into a series of myths and truths. And what we're gonna mm. do, what we'll do now is I think we'll we'll just talk briefly about each one because I think mm. that starts to build up the case and then you come in with this marvellous crescendo at the end, which is your manifesto. So let's kick off, if, if we can, John, with the, uh, the popularity myth then. Everybody watches uh, Sky Sports, everybody watches the Premier League, it's the most popular league in the world, and all that sort of stuff. That's right, isn't it?
3: Well, it turns out, no. It turns out that uh, we've been conned a bit about that, really. Very successfully, over 27 years, we've had the Premier League sold to us as though it's really, really popular and really successful. Now, in the ground, in terms of attendances, yes, it is popular. The grounds are almost always sold out. However, what the Premier League have cleverly done is conflated that popularity with their brand. Now, it won't come as a surprise to you or to any of your listeners, but football's been really popular for over for 100 years, and it was popular before the Premier League started. The record crowds, most um, clubs' record crowds, were all established before the Premier League. So what they've done is they've kind of um, absconded with our with our passion for the game, and uh, they've sold it back to us as though they've created it. So we all think Premier League would be both successful. Lots of people are watching it. Well, since the... Um, since 1992 when it first went behind the paywall I don't believe anybody's ever made any money uh, broadcasting it and that's because not very many people uh, subscribe to watch it typically BT Sport at the moment will get anywhere from 200,000 viewers for a, a low key game between two small clubs up to the very most they've ever got is 1.7 million Sky typically um, orbits around the million uh, figure mark. They showed 128 games last year. 112 of them did not get 2 million viewers. So, in the UK, we know there is a huge audience for football on television. How do we know that? Well, we know that because uh, Match of the Day highlights typically get 4 to 6 million across all. The different platforms. Uh, England games, when they're on terrestrial broadcasting, get anywhere from 16 to a whopping 33 million for the England Croatia game in 2018 World Cup semi final, which was the largest audience ever had in the UK for a single channel broadcast. That is beaten only by the death of Princess Diana, the funeral, and uh, the World Cup final of but they were broadcast on two channels. In the creation game was only broadcast on one. That 30 million they got for that is the largest audience for any um, broadcast on a single channel in the UK. So we know there is potentially a massive audience for football on television, or, but we also know that very few of that big audience, as a percentage, are prepared to pay to watch it.
1: In the course of your research, did, did it come out how many people are, are sort of watching it on illegal streams and things like that? And to what well, extent is well, that undermining the Sky model?
3: Well, yes, I mean, this is the other thing, interestingly, because obviously there's no way of really measuring how many people are watching it through illegal streaming. An audience entirely lost to the monetization process. And um, so it was interesting, about a month ago, the CEO of B in Sports in the Middle East said, a big change is coming because we're not prepared to pay so much money for broadcast rights when basically it's being accessed for free.
2: Yeah.
3: Uh, we're giving it away effectively. Who pays big money for something that subsequently everybody can get for nothing? Yeah. So which is a you know, logical really. And um these complaints with that Sky, particularly but other podcasts too, have never really invested or made any real um attempts to block illegal streaming. I talked to somebody about that. And this is actually really hard to stop live streaming, um, feeds. I mean, I know nothing about that side of things. But anyway, the bottom line is yes. What my contention is, or the fact of the matter is, is that yes, it's hugely popular. Um, football is hugely popular. There is a huge audience for it. But what there isn't is a huge audience who are prepared to pay for it. Yeah. Um, even, even numbers in pubs watching has dropped off because it's expensive for the pubs to show it, and fewer fewer people go to the pubs to drink now anyway. So, why the still get a lot in from an Iron Man singing game, you know, nobody's going to a pub paying five hundred pounds to watch Burnley play Watford. waffle. You know, nobody's doing that. So, yeah, basically, what I thought was that, um, I thought, well, that's really interesting, because I do think we all assume it's hugely popular and has a huge audience, and that's why the rights fees go for such a huge amount of money. And again, cleverly, I think, the Premier League has marketed itself as successful because it gets so much money. And we equate money with success, don't we? Yes. And um, and uh, that's a very interesting thing because that's why we all think it's super popular. So anyway, I went on after that, trying to cut kind a of long story short, I went on to look at the global viewing things because it's often said that's where you know, it's a huge global audience. You'll hear that expression used a lot, a huge global audience for the Premier League. There isn't. It isn't true. Firstly, uh, well, there's two aspects to this. One, the figures are incredibly hard to get hold of and very milky, very opaque. Now, to call me cynical, but I think if I was Sky and I, or I was the Premier League and I had some massive fake viewing figures at hand, I would be shouting about it all the time. Yes. Uh, but they are not. And that is because the typical average, average is a crucial word, the average viewing figures globally playing any Premier League live game is 12 million. This on a planet of 7.7 billion people, 12 million. Now, obviously, big games will get 40, little games will get one or two. But the average is 12. Now, that means even if we say 12 million, watch each of the 10 uh, games in any round, you are looking at about 120 million at the very maximum, and it won't be that, that far out because the games are played simultaneously, or six or seven of them off now, so you can't watch them all at the same time. But let's just assume that that was possible, that the maximum global audience for any round of games is about 120 million people. And that's almost, as a percentage of the global population, is almost none. I mean, when Sky was sold to Comcast, in 2018 uh, it was said sky had um 23 million subscriptions in europe not for football but 23 million subscriptions for their services so it will be less than that for the football but there are 741 million people live in europe sky have 23 million subscribers across all of their services it's hardly any so how we, we can see that Football is not being watched, the Premier League is not being watched by a massive amount of people. However, and here is where the fix comes in again, it is by far and away the most watched league. Bundesliga, La Liga, Serie A, don't get anywhere near these numbers. Mm. So they can success on that basis, but in and of itself, not many people as a percentage of the interested audience are actually watching it. So... You know, that made me think, well, that's weird. Why is everybody paying higher sky and everybody paying, you know, nine million quid a game, as it is at the moment? And so that led on to another bit of the chapter, really.
1: Nine million pounds for a game of football uh, that's attracting that audience isn't going to bring in the advertising revenue either.
3: No, it isn't. Well, I mean, I'm told that ITV got about two or three million pounds in revenue from advertising for the broadcasting of that England-Croatia yeah. in the World Cup semi-final to 30 million people, so quite how, how much BT are getting in when they're broadcasting Cardiff fee Burnley <laughs> to 200,000 people? You know, it's like 58p, probably. You no, know, I mean this is why I think almost certainly nobody has ever made money broadcasting football behind a paywall, which is a strange thought, isn't it, really?
1: it is it is and the uh, i think you mentioned it as well in the book uh, about the the viewing figures of, of women's football particularly the recent women's yeah. world cup so that that's something that's it's the same sport but it's getting way way more exposure because it's, yeah. it's been on terrestrial tv and if they if they were cute uh, i'm sure that, that that's marketing differential that they could really exploit
3: Well, so i talked to mark Chapman um about this you know the Kaiser's as much as the, the yes. pretty presents on five live yes and he was saying that um, um, the reach of broadcasting, i.e. how many people can experience it, has been ignored by the Premier League particularly for far too long. And all they've been bothered about is maximising revenue from rights fee sales. But in fact, when you have a massive reach, that has a value, and it has a monetized value um, through advertising, through word of mouth, through increased sales and tickets and merchandise and Lots of other things in this awareness. It has a value beyond just your rights fees. And he said in America, because he's a big fan of American sports, he said um, all of the, the major sports in America are never behind paywalls because they know that to restrict the most popular sport, uh, viewing audience is really um, you know, cutting off your nose to spite your face yeah. just to make a few extra dollars. Yeah. You know, you're basically you're shriveling your audience. You're disengaging people, mainly just to pick up a few extra quick now. And then further down the line, you've got a smaller audience, less people are interested. Future generations won't invest money in the game or buy tickets or won't do all these other associated things. So basically, you're withering the sport by uh, narrowing the audience. And so, and I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Because obviously, football's the biggest sport in Britain. Um, and yet nobody who hasn't been prepared to pay um, a subscription fee. Nobody's ever seen a top-flight league game live for twenty-seven years. Of course, That's of course. just it's,
1: a... it's one of the um, amazing paradoxes. I think of of America is that for a country that ostensibly embraces capitalism in all its forms, they have the draft system to level out um, the mm. team's performances in the NFL, uh, yeah. and then the the example you just given there, where they wouldn't sell the rights to the to the highest payer. Because they want everyone to see the sport, and for a, a country that ostensibly uh, is terrified at the prospect of Bernie Sanders being present president, there are uh, there are a number of sort of like good socialist <laughs> principles at stake. There, it's it's really yeah. quite extraordinary.
3: Well, I think it's actually done from a business perspective and a more holistic business yes. perspective.
1: Playing the long game,
3: exactly. That's it. Yeah? Exactly. So if you don't invest in your audience if you don't invest in maintaining and expanding your audience at some point or other you're not gonna have a game. And although that's something of an exaggeration, that is the, the motivation behind it. And also because by with the draft and such things, more competitive sport is more attractive sport. Yeah. And what we've seen in the UK is it get less competitive and get more predictable. Um so it's very but again this is all coming to an end now and we need to find a new way forward. So uh, that's what some of the other chapters of the book are about.
1: So all this money coming into the game, it must mean it's a better game. It must mean we've got better players.
3: Well, this is the argument that's often said, of course, and um, mm-hmm. I think this is a very um, interesting argument, because I'm not quite sure uh, how we measure this. Like, for example, you can say, yes, we've balled up, there's lots of great players coming to the league because the clubs can afford to buy them, but... There is no inevitable uh, line you can draw between paying 90 million pounds to somebody and them being playing well every week. And indeed, even within that, what does playing well mean? What does it being good mean? I mean, I make a big thing in the book about how this is this mindset which we've been inculcated into by the Premier League, which now insists. We see everything through this lens of money. It's like it's turned football less into a sport and more into shopping. So you go, oh, we need a £50 million pound striker. As though you are buying Armani jeans as opposed to buying jeans from you see, i tell you what the greatest parallel with this is. If you buy an expensive car, you expect it to work from day one and be incredibly great and efficient. We don't expect someone to go. It'll take a year to settle in. And then it will play well every <laughs> other day. After that, it'll work well. But because, because we've commodified footballers into assets, and yeah. we think, I mean, uh, Mesozo is a great example of this. I mean, that poor lad gets pelters because he earns absolute fortune and is occasionally brilliant, but often isn't. Same with Pogba, all these people. And they should have been judged as an asset as a well we paid all this money for you why aren't you great all the time and the answer is because i'm a human being and that football when you rate it in this way when you measure it against finances and say well we've spent money so it therefore is better or should be better but what does that mean i mean for example i'll tell you i watch my local amateur team and you can see somebody crash one in from 25 yards and it is every bit of thrill as seeing more salad because football is a brutally levelling thing. All football is played exactly to the same rules, whether it's high or low, and um, it's a, it can be as exciting for players not being particularly skillful as it can be for players being skillful. You know, there are many joys mm-hmm. to football that don't lie, and you've been able to have fantastic ball control, but, you know, that's the game is a multi-hued beast it isn't easily boxed into oh well he can he can dribble like Lionel Messi therefore this football is great you know it doesn't work like that football just I often struggle to explain this fully to people but um I do think that um, football is more popularly be popular because it delivers enjoyment beyond that which you can measure you know and I think we use the money now to try and measure it
1: yeah, it's almost like the the, the money is used as um, a, a benchmark, uh, a quality benchmark, shall we say? And one of the things you talk about in the book is, uh, uh, you know, uh quoting a fan that sort of said our club lacks ambition because we are we're only offered player X thirty thousand pounds a week. Yeah, where, where's the ambition of the board uh, why aren't they spending yeah. Yeah, we need a £50 million pound player not we need a creative midfielder yeah. we need a £50 million pound player because he'll be better than a £40 yeah. million pound player I don't,
3: I don't understand maybe that is a generational thing I don't understand why people think this because time and again we see players coming for vast fees I mean look at what Newcastle plays for Joel Linton and me, run and um you know, 20 or 30-odd million quid, they're not as good as somebody like, I don't know, Andy Robertson from Hull, when Liverpool bought him, five yeah, million. Yeah. These things, you can't use the money as a measure. The money seems arbitrary, as far as I can tell, which brings us on to one of the other great myths, um, which is that somehow all of this is down to this magical, mysterious force called market forces. as market forces, and that, uh, that's why everybody gets paid so much. That's why transfer fees are so high. But I think, as I lay out in detail in the book, that is a completely spurious argument, which bears no relation to what market forces means in typical economic terms, largely because every Premier League side gets given for free 150 million quid before they even open the shop. And they're uh, quite what business gets free money to start trading that every year. I don't. I, that doesn't. That doesn't happen anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And and that means they don't have to obey the laws of market economics because uh, they have free money. So it doesn't matter whether they make money, make a profit or not. Uh, they've got. They can. They don't have to pay the market rate. They can pay over the market rate if they want, um, which is why. Where the Premier League colonises so many great players from Europe. Yeah, so they don't have to. It is—it's not market forces as it normally would be talked about. It is rather a kind of privatized cabal, a financial cabal, where basically one lot has got a small amount of clubs have got tons and tons of money, and they don't have to obey the rules that all the other clubs do. I was talking to a guy this morning. who's a, a, a journalist in Holland, in the Netherlands, who's Ajax fan. They said how frustrating it is for them to develop all these great players when the Premier League just buys them yeah they said it just feels like you know there's no there's no even playing field here it's just like we've got all the money we'll do what we want to yeah. find a, a form of financial bullying and uh, i'm not I'm not surprised he feels bitter and angry about it yeah it
1: it, it really is I can remember sort of in my my youth watching the first division as it was in the seventies, and Ipswich Town would hang on to a player, uh, Derby County would hang on to a player far far longer than they would today. So you, you could imagine uh, players being snapped up by the, the big six now that they wouldn't wouldn't be allowed to blossom. And Ipswich Town won the FA Cup, Derby County won the league under under Clough and Mackay, and it's just well, Leicester City is always the outlier, but it's just it's hard to see somebody like that coming through and actually being able to to break the barrier. There's a fascinating stat, one of many fascinating stats in the book, where you talk about in 1980, eight players earned more than £50,000 a year. And today, that would equate to £220,000 in today's money. £220,000? I I think I could get by on that.
3: Oh, exactly. See, this is why... Uh, when I argue about money in the book or when I make a point about it, people always go and say, well, what should they earn? And I say, if you are one of the most in demand, the finest players, and you've proven this over many uh, years, then 220,000 quid a year, that puts you in the top 1% earner in the country. So, you know, your quality, your elite status would be confirmed by that. However... People are on 200,000 pounds a week, not a year, a week. And I just don't see that this is justified in any way whatsoever. Clearly, isn't market economics. It's just a form of financial insanity, which um, even the people who are getting paid the money, even the players, and I spoke to a Premier League player about it, even he was embarrassed by it because he said, I'm not worth this money. Nobody is worth this money. He was going relatively modestly paid on £200,000 a month. And he said, it's just, I don't need any of it. So, you know, we've reached that point where it isn't sustainable anymore, really. And it's alienating fans from the game, culturally and economically. And uh, I think it has to change. I think it should change. I think morally it should change.
1: So you you introduce in the book this uh, this extraordinary manifesto. So tell us then, how do we, how do we as fans break the mold and what should football look like in this brave new world?
3: Core of the problem is the uh, sale of the rights fees, the broadcast rights. Fees. That's where the money comes from. Now, it's an extraordinarily brittle situation. I'm not sure uh, I'm sure the Premier League don't want for us realise how brittle it is. But um, the wealth of the game and the strength of the Premier League's ability to attract players and its self-identity, I mean, it's more than happy to be known as the richest league paying the most money for everything. Um, that is entirely predicated on the paywall concept. But as we know, the paywall concept isn't paying profits and is isn't attracting an audience And people like the CEO being and calling out um, all of the illegal streams and saying, why the hell should we pay all this money when people are accessing it for free? This means essentially that the rights fees are on the way down. But I would like to hasten this process by everybody just basically not subscribing anymore and doing it en masse over a season. So that those viewing figures of one and two million or 125,000, or whatever it is, drops right away. It drops down to the tens of thousands. Because eh, the games, the highlights still being match today, the games are all on the radio, but this is a longer term revolution we're interested in doing. And what they would say, it would say, we, the football public, are not, we'll not put up with this anymore. We won't buy this. Most of us have never bought it, for those of us who have, this is our emblematic quitting of the system. Up this, we will not put any longer. Go away and do something that is more in touch with the people, and that isn't so obscenely based around cash. And simultaneously, with doing that, I mean, can you imagine what that would be? I mean, can you imagine the effect that would have if Sky suddenly, I mean, they would hide it <laughs> as much as they could, but yeah. those viewing figures, which have to which are published. Um, all the time by Nielsen and the like. Can you imagine the viewing figures have all dropped down and now they're all under 100,000? The whole thing would be luck and it would be failing. So then another financial structure has to start to become discussed, which is where I think we should be campaigning for all live football to be listed as a sport by the UK government. It just means it has to be available free to wear to 95% of the population. If we do that, we bring football away from the economic elites um, elite who can afford to pay for it or want to pay for it, bring it back into the bosom of the people so that we can all once again share our passion for the game, all over life football, in a way that we do when it's internationals, but which we can't do when it's league football. And I think that would be a tremendous positive effect on society. It's inclusive not exclusive. The Premier League is all about being exclusive, not being inclusive, not pulling everybody together. We are denied water cooler moments about football that we really should not be being denied. For example, Liverpool 4, Barcelona 0, a couple of million people saw that. Now imagine if that was on ITV with Clive and Andy. That would have been a 10, 12 million game. That's how many people have watched it, possibly even more. And we would have all experienced the thrill of that game together. It would have become embedded in the, um, the folk memory of us all, in the way that games like Liverpool against Borussia Mönchengladbach back in the 70s or stuck to our work. All these great games that we all saw together Arsenal p. Uh, Liverpool 1989 it's up for grabs now. But well, it wouldn't be up for grabs now because there'd only be <laughs> a couple of million on Sky and Brian Moore would be shouting into the darkness to, to no viewers. Um, but at the time, of course, he had 18, 20 million people watching it. These things are important because football is a binder for society. It's part of the warp, and the west of our, of our culture. And when it's denied to us by financial exclusivity, then we, all, we are all losers for that. Now... Um, this is a really big thing for me. I'm, I'm a great believer in the fact that people, once they experience sport on television, tend to go out and play that sport in greater numbers. And this has been very well proven over women's football. Yeah. Participation rates for both girls and women playing has gone up exponentially with the thing on TV. I think the exact same thing is true for the Premier League. So in other words, if we start to get a lot more people watching a lot more football, a lot more of the time, many more of us will be kicking the ball around, or be more active generally. This, at the time, when we have a type 2 diabetes crisis, uh, li- a lifestyle affliction that much more exercise um, and uh, a more athletic lifestyle would uh, do much to arrest. It costs us 14 billion pounds and rising a year to pay The bill for type 2 diabetes in the UK. The rights fees, even at the current rate, would cost about 4 billion a year. In effect, it would cost much less less than that when we've uh, developed them. I think you could quite easily argue that for the sake of the national health and for the sake of the health of the country, we could quite easily, for three years, buy football for 4 billion quid. Uh, £1 billion a year, and shave 10% off that type 2 diabetes bill just by the knock-on uh, advantages of the example it would set. To do that, that's, I mean, a government could well afford to do that.
1: Well, apparently there is a magic money tree, as we found. We're in an election campaign, and I've got to say, your 12-point manifesto, which is right at the end of the book, uh, it, it sort of all comes together so beautifully. I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it for people buying... Who will buy it and read it? But it do, it does come together uh, and makes a coherent case. And we're seeing something I think similar in cricket, where cricket is suffering for only being on um, on Sky. And of course, yeah. the World Cup final they shared the um, the rights with Channel Four. uh yeah. the, the the hundred, much maligned though it is, will at least bring some terrestrial TV coverage back to cricket next year. And all of that is predicated on trying to get participation rates up and just try and get people riding the wave of uh, of glory for in the World Cup this year. So football, I think uh, the average age of people with season tickets is rising every year because uh, it's the same people going. I think the younger generation coming through are used to watching clips on the phone. They don't know what it's like to be able to, to turn on a TV and watch watch a live game on terrestrial TV. So the novelty factor for them alone would be yeah. quite extraordinary. Obviously, it's too late to go into the manifestos of, of the parties for the upcoming election, but it wouldn't surprise me if there were snippets of this that, that found its way into into the mainstream, for, for sure. And I know one of the things that you talk about is um, a football sovereign wealth fund. Yes, Something absolutely. Something very, very similar that Andy Holt at Accrington Stanley has been talking
3: That's about. That's right. Yeah, I mean, all of these things are actually quite populist in their um, outlook. In other words, they are for the people... By the people. Now, a savvy politician, a savvy politician of any stripe, would see if they have a holistic vision, which unfortunately many do not. But if they could see this, because obviously, if the government buys rights, football rights for the country, it'll be, you can imagine all of the outraged voices saying, spending all this money on, I don't even like football, blah, blah, blah. You sell it as for the health benefits of the nation. Then social exclusion to increase fitness to inc- to decrease illness we know exercise helps with mental health issues we are a country currently eating itself into a type 2 diabetes crisis we are spending half a billion pounds a year on antidepressants 71 and a half million prescriptions for antidepressants is there anybody seriously telling me now, we can't shave some of the cost of this off by encouraging people to play more football, to kick the ball around the park, to come together more, to play sports, and thereby alleviate some of these life altering conditions. I just don't believe it. I think we absolutely could, and we absolutely should. And I think... The exclusion that I talk about in the book that we all feel, where like we're all but there is no water cooler moment now. We are all glued to our own little subscriptions, or we're we're watching our own little dodgy feeds of games. We have become atomized. and uh, we need to come back together Absolutely. because society only works when it's when it's together. I am an old hippie, and I know that uh, <laughs> I am fond of uh, quoting Rush lyrics, and. Uh, the, uh, the space that's between us all leaves the room for you and I to go, and all of that. But I really genuinely believe this. I think much of the sickness and the dysfunction at the heart of, of society in Britain is caused by the economic philosophies of which the Premier League is a prime exponent and a prime em- emblem and a prime mover and driver of. It feels, to me, and I'd be interested to know if you and your listeners think the same way, to me, it feels very old-fashioned, It feels, the whole subscription model feels like yesterday's thing, you know, the idea of buying something that comes through a satellite dish, I mean, I know it doesn't anymore, but just, it just seems of a different era now, 27 years is a long way away, Look look at where we are. Let's think about how football, and uh, football both in terms of broadcast terms and in as played by us and as watched by us, let's think of it as part of society and not part of some economic privilege that only the people who are earning good money can uh, afford to watch. Because that's the other point I haven't got to, for which I just have to briefly make, is that as a country, we're absolutely, largely, quite skinned. Uh, the average wage is 27 grand a year. If you earn 70 grand a year, that puts you in the top five percent of earn- earners. 140 puts you in the top one percent. In other words, most of us haven't got much, and yet we are making the wealthy even wealthier by our support of Premier League football via subscription rights. I don't feel comfortable doing that anymore. And once I actually coalesce those thoughts. Those thoughts uh, I it was wrong, and I'll tell you what it's. I think it's morally wrong. I really think it's morally wrong that we make people so wealthy and we accept it as normal. It's become no, normalised for Alexis Sanchez to be paid 39 pounds for every minute he draws breath in his life. I just think it's wrong. I don't think we should. I don't think we should endorse it
1: it's 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 hard to disagree john you make an extraordinarily passionate case and and the book is as i say a gripping read whether whether it polarizes your opinion to one end or the other uh, it, it is a fascinating read one of the reviews on amazon i think this this sums it up this book perfectly sums up what i feel is wrong with the premier league in particular it's naked greed and its obsession with money and it's consequent lack of real competition in the league uh, I recommend this book as a voice of sanity in a now insane football world. Uh, there are many other five-star reviews on <laughs> Amazon as well. But we, uh, <laughs> to read to read all those out, we 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 will be here all night. I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. You make a really really strong case. I
3: was, was going to say as well, absolutely. <laughs> lacking one star of you as well. No, and I must say. Uh, yeah. But there was somebody who said to me, I it was Mark and Matt Chalice said to me, Oh, that must be written by Richard Scudamore. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that probably uh, 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 Or Richard Keyes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the Keyesy. I hope well, it is, anyway. But I, I actually think. And this is a great thing though because it is a polemic, the book is a polemic. It really comes from the heart. And it absolutely should make should make you it should make your heart pound with joy or with anger. I'm not interested in three star <laughs> middle of the road. Yeah. Yeah. I really want I'll grow your heartache, I don't want anything between and um uh, because it does mean a lot to me. And um I'm sorry my voice is a bit croaky today, but um I think I hope that that comes across it just how to- I should have you know? It's How a- important
1: it is. It certainly does, John. As I say, it's a, it's a terrific read. It really, really is. Uh, I don't know whether we'll boost your sales quite as much as your appearance on the Guardian Football Weekly Podcast, but we'll do a bit. I know there's some people today who have replied to a retweet that I did sort of saying it's on the on the Christmas list and birthday list and things like that, but uh, I can hardly recommend it. So to, to get a hold of it, I'm sure it's a, it's the usual joke. It's available in all good bookshops and quite a few crappy ones, but also you can go to your website, which is writer dot uh, com and I have uh, I have a signed copy I, don't, I think there are some rare unsigned copies again as the old joke would have it but it's uh, it really is a fantastic fantastic read John thanks so much for coming back once again it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast and it's been a terrific talking about the book it's been terrific reading it and and I hope that more, uh, more people will buy it and I hope that between us all collectively as football fans we can break the mould and bring the game back oh. to the people that would be a fitting tribute
3: Football is the people's game Um, They took it from us One day soon man we should take it back
1: Sounds like a great place to finish Thanks once again John
3: Take care mate
2: Islands. Uh, I've had to ring you, I've got an idea. Go on, but you're going to have to be quick because I'm halfway through listening to the BRFCS podcast. Picture this, the riverside stand, the big redevelopment. Okay. Okay, bear with me. We're going to take out all the seats. I've got it. Safe standing. Oh, no, 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 no. It's better than that. We replaced the whole lot with sunbeds. What? You bet. I've actually just got a Rover's beach towel from the Terrace Store, and it's absolutely fantastic. High quality, retro Rover's design. Mine's based on the 1995 Awaken. I like the sound of that. You could be onto something. Where did you get it from again? I got it from theTerraceStore.com. All the podcast listeners get an exclusive discount by entering the discount code BRFCS at the checkout.
1: See, see, Mr. Baker liked it as well, and you sent him a T-shirt. That was a terrific marketing
3: idea. Well, uh, to be honest, um, I've had talks with Daddy a lot over the years I for can't. one thing or another, and also to Danny Kelly as well, who also there, pals, yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah. Daddy yeah, did a little course of the cover, yeah, and uh, so they all got together, uh, so yeah, they that sort of batting on the same wicket, nearly me and so he was the...
1: To take cheers john thanks a lot
3: bye, bye then.